0: Really what the research suggests is that it's supporting the target that really is more effective than punishing the bully, which tends to lead to retaliation.
1: Hi, I'm Delaney Rustin, and this is the Screenagers podcast, where we talk about how we help our kids be tech-wise and life-balanced. Our topic today is all about bullying and cyberbullying. What's fact, what's fiction, and mistakes parents often make. We'll be looking at what we can do in our schools and homes that are most helpful. And frankly, some of these are really counterintuitive. My guest is Dr. Elizabeth Englender, a psychologist who's been researching youth for many years. She's also been creating programs. She's written several books, and one of her most recent one is entitled 25 Myths About Bullying and Cyberbullying. Elizabeth has a special place in my heart because one of her programs was in the film Screenagers Next Chapter, where you see a scene that I love where high schoolers are mentoring middle schoolers about navigating online social conflicts. Let's get started. Elizabeth, you've been researching the social-emotional worlds of kids and teens in your lab for years. When we talk about... um, bullying and cyberbullying i've really wanted to do away with those words because the bully makes it seem like there's just the bad versus the good the target do you think overall
0: it's okay to keep with that terminology there are advantages and disadvantages either way honestly you know there's no doubt about it that that the terms bullying and cyberbullying are overused or they're used incorrectly on the other hand they are sort of a shortcut for understanding a dynamic between two kids. And I do think you wanna avoid victim blaming. So you wanna avoid situations where we say to kids, well, you're both responsible for what's happening when it really might not be the case. I think that instead of saying, well, the word bullying or cyberbullying defines what's happening, what it really does is it signals to us that this is a situation we need to dive a little bit deeper into. Tell us how you define cyberbullying and bullying. The definition of bullying is very well accepted, and it really has to do with cruelty by one child or a group of children towards another child, deliberate, intentional cruelty that happens repeatedly. And there has to be a power dynamic between the target and the perpetrator or perpetrators such that uh, the target is really not able to defend themselves. They have significantly less power in the situation. Cyberbullying is different because the whole dynamic online becomes different suddenly it becomes harder to judge, for example, when something happens repeatedly. What does that mean? If I put out a, if I post a a rumor about you, Delaney, and and other people pick it up and spread it around and suddenly everybody has heard this and it makes your life miserable, is that cyberbullying? I mean, certainly you've experienced something repeatedly, but maybe I only did something once. It just makes it, Really hard to sort of stick to the bullying definition.
1: So, what do you kind of tell
0: people then about that or kids in schools? The point to understand is that in a digital environment, things can get away from you. So, Mm -hmm. you may just be repeating a rumor thoughtlessly. You know, you're not, maybe I'm. I'm telling somebody a rumor about you, Delaney, but I'm not even trying to hurt your feelings. Like maybe I don't even think you'll ever know that I repeated this rumor about you. And I'm not trying to get everybody to laugh at you, but I still need to understand that if I post something online or I text it or message it to somebody else, then that could very well get everywhere. So it's really important, I think, for kids to understand the nature of technology such that it really, it really can get away from you very fast. That's really the lesson rather than sticking to the labels per se.
1: The fact that kids often now in teens are using the word bullying when someone just posts uh, a mean comment, what's the downside? And do you spend a lot of time trying to educate the difference between cruel acts and meanness here and there versus bullying?
0: You know, you can actually victimize somebody worse by giving them a more serious label. If somebody is mean to you online and they, you know, make fun of a sweatshirt you wore to school that day and nobody else repeats it or notices it, then it might not be that big a deal. But then if somebody comes up to you and says, Delaney, that was cyberbullying. You are a victim of cyberbullying. Then you might feel worse. You might feel much worse. Not healthy for kids on either side if their sort of more minor problems, slip ups, cruelties are mislabeled as sort of this very serious, repeated, intentional cruelty.
1: Yeah. And I, and just like you're saying, I'm just thinking about the person who did the act, who made a comment about the sweatshirt. And suddenly a bunch of people come up to them and said, Ooh, you were cyberbullying. And so now you've worsened the whole dynamic and how they feel for just doing an impulsive uh text and therefore that all happens on on some realm on social media i know your research has looked at younger kids getting social media and that's been a big thing with COVID. a lot of parents just felt oh my gosh i just have to let them have any ways they can communicate and you looked at the chances of being cyberbullied if you owned a phone.
0: So the research you're talking about was research done on elementary school kids and middle schoolers and high schoolers. And what it found was that if you owned a cell phone in elementary school, your odds of being involved in cyberbullying increased significantly. And the younger you were, the stronger the relationship. So it was strongest actually amongst third graders, and then it decreased. And by the time it got to middle school, it wasn't significant anymore. It's that the association between owning a cell phone and becoming involved in cyberbullying is strongest among the younger kids. But that's not saying that they cyberbullied more. Cyberbullying and bullying generally peak in middle school. And you could still get embroiled in cyberbullying even if you don't own a phone, because it doesn't matter. Kids are using devices all the time anyway. You know, so they're always on tablets and they're playing games and you know, leaving comments on TikToks. And I mean, there's, there's all kinds of things that are going on even if they don't own one. Owning one, of course, increases the opportunity window, right? So when you own one and you're carrying around all the time, then you have, you have obviously more opportunity.
1: Just a quick aside, knowing about Englanders' research is just another reason why our campaign at Screenagers called Away for the Day, about phones away during the school day, is so important. We have a whole website about it.
0: Well, Let's talk a little bit about myths. The idea that adults have very well-meaning adults often is that the best thing to do about about bullying is to confront the bully and to say we know what you're doing and you're being really mean and you have to stop and the idea is that either the bully doesn't know what they're doing which means it's actually not really bullying because remember bullying is intentional they're doing it over and over again they know what they're doing or that they just won't do it if they think other people are disapproving of their behavior. Now that's that's not such a bad hypothesis. The problem is that what what research generally finds, and it's not just my research, um, other researchers have found this too, is that when bullies are publicly confronted, they tend to take that as sort of a challenge and one that they can't back away from. So they'll sort of redouble their efforts and uh, about 75% of the time, uh, that kind of confrontation has no effect at all or the effect it has is to make the bullying worse for the target. how does that differ than an upstander? The word upstander is, one of those words that sort of sounds cute. Um, I'm not sure what it means. And I think you're not either. Uh, If it means confronting bullies, it's not a good idea. One of the things that we teach kids in the programming we do in schools is that they can always, always, always help a target. That is always a helpful thing to do. It's not gonna make things worse for them. Take a target by the hand and get them out of that situation. Tell them, you know, even if you say something simple, like don't pay any attention to him. That is an incredibly powerful thing. It doesn't always stop the bullying. But here's the interesting point. In our research, when another kid sticks up for you, it actually helps stop the bullying something like 21% of the time, which doesn't sound so good, but over 50% of the time, what it does is it helps the target not care so much. It helps them feel more resilient. We really want kids to learn that it's good to disregard people who are, you know, meaningless and cruel. It's
1: just such a key message of how do we support the person who is the target and not create a backlash against the bully. Like we don't want to like have, you know, like uh, two teams against each other.
0: Right. We don't want to set up a challenge. The point is to just say to a target, I think that person, uh, that person's actions don't matter. And I'm encouraging you to feel that way too. And I'm on your side. And that's really powerful stuff.
1: Oh, completely. And I love in the book, can you say a little bit about the messaging that you give to the bully, how their actions offend you, the teacher, the principal, whatever it is?
0: One of the problems that I noticed, you know, in the field decades ago, really, was that if you're an adult and you say to a bully, well, you know, what you're doing is really hurting Jennifer's feelings and, you know, you shouldn't do that. Then the problem is you sort of set up this dynamic where you're saying... It's because of Jennifer that I'm saying this. You know, I don't want her feelings to be hurt, and so I'm telling you this because of Jennifer. I'm thinking of her, and then Jennifer feels obligated to say, "Hey, Bud, I didn't, I didn't ask you to stick up for me." And and what that's not what they say. What the kids say is, "I'm fine," you know. He's not hurting my feelings. I'm fine. I'm totally fine. And then the adult is sort of left in that situation, like well, what do I do now? So a better response is to say, look, when you bully people, you affect people other than the target. You know, you're, you're affecting everybody, including me. So when I hear you talk that way to somebody, uh, it, it really bothers me. And I, I want you to stop doing it in my classroom. And if Jennifer says I'm fine, she's fine with it, that's her business, but I'm not fine with it. More and more educators are using this approach now. We actually did some research on this where we went, we asked kids to sort of rank the, how friendly in general they felt their school was. And then we cross-tabbed that with whether or not they said that most teachers would respond that way if they saw somebody being mean. And what we found was that kids who said that most teachers responded that way in their school were, um, you know, something like 30 times more likely to rank their school environment as being really like a nice and friendly place to go to school.
1: You know, I keep thinking back to the only time in my life that I experienced all of this was in sixth grade. It was a school in Berkeley called Kilimanjaro, which if you can imagine a alternative Berkeley <laughs> elementary school, <laughs> which meant we just didn't even really have a campus. We were just shuttled from back places to back places for years. My girlfriends and I, we took turns excluding one of us. And it was so painful when it was your term to be excluded. But I keep thinking about the idea that it it really wasn't just one bully. It was, it was a group mm-hmm. of us that would exclude the other. Mm -hmm. But yet you and I, as we keep talking, we're talking about the bully. I would imagine so often it's more like a a few girls together, a few guys together. What has your research shown about
0: that? You know, it really cuts both ways. Sometimes it's one person, but often, even if it's only one person, they're sort of enjoying the social support of other people. The real question is, do other people sort of stand by? Do they Uh, you know, pat the bully on the back for doing what they're doing? Do they actively join in? You know, what's going on? And I think that people feel much more comfortable about being critical or even cruel to another person when they have a group. And honestly, I sometimes see this kind of dynamic among adults in communities where they're unhappy with you know, a police officer in town, they're unhappy with a fourth grade teacher, Uh, they're unhappy with a neighbor, and they get together a whole group of people online to sort of trash this person. And it's not a terribly different dynamic. You know, it really isn't. And uh, it's, you know, it's not productive in terms of solving any problems, but it emboldens people, and it makes them feel better about their own opinions. That's one of your myths in your book,
1: right? Like that that bullying stops as an adult. And it's so important that we as adults, when we see that kind of activity happening in our age groups to use those as ways to talk with our kids. So it's not always them, you know, their issues and their problems.
0: Definitely. It's not just kids.
1: The social cruelty now that is becoming more profound on social media does that bear out in any research you've done
0: absolutely so one of the things that we do is when kids report an incidence of bullying to us we talk to them about it in detail about what what was what went on in this circumstance and one of the things we ask them about is why they were bullied and what kinds of language was used against them and so when we do that, we separate incidents into clearly bias-based bullying, which is when kids are bullied because of their, their race, their religion, their parents are immigrants, their ethnic status, their uh, sexuality, anything like that, their gender identity. And then we have cases that we call sort of maybe bias, where we're not really sure, you know, because kids say things like, well, I was bullied because I look funny. They said I look funny. You know, there's no way to tell what that means. It could just be like you have big ears or it could be the color of your skin. And then there are cases that clearly have nothing to do with bias. And those are cases like somebody bullies another person because they are dating their ex-boyfriend. A social reason. So we started tracking the rates of bias, maybe bias, and non-bias bullying in 2014. And the first two years, it was very stable, and non-bias was the most common type, and bias was the least common type. And then in 2016, bias-based bullying took off, and it increased every year through 2019. We haven't analyzed the 2020 data yet. What we saw has basically mirrored what every other research house has found, every other one. And that, you know, bias is increasing. And people always ask me when I talk about that finding at like conferences and stuff, people always say to me, why do you think it increased in 2016? You know, and I always say, I don't really want to go there. But I will say that I really think children follow the lead of adults in these matters. Mm -hmm. And I think that when adults are emboldened, children are too.
1: Yeah. And so completely new paradigm, having this all played out on a landscape where kids are on the same platforms as adults, et cetera. So it's a really kind of whole new concerning playing field. I want to switch to how often it is that parents find that their uh, teens don't want to talk to
0: them about if anything's happening online. One of the number one reasons is that uh, teenagers tend to be very afraid that their toys are going to get taken away. So they're worried that if they tell their parents what's really going on, they, in effect, will be punished.
1: And lose their screen time, their social media, whatever.
0: And lose their
1: screen time. Elizabeth adds another reason why they might not come to us.
0: I think they feel like the advice adults give often isn't helpful. So they say things like, just block this person or don't use this app. And the problem with that is one of the things we found last year was that we measured both positive and negative interactions online on social media for teenagers. And what we found was that actually one app had both the most negative and the most positive, which suggests that really what's happening is that some apps sort of lend themselves to intense emotional exchanges and others don't as much. And it kind of helps explain why it's not helpful to say, oh, just don't use that app. Because if that's the app where I'm getting most of my positive interactions as well, I'm not going to want to give that up. My point is, is that we as adults sort of have to have a better understanding of how kids live with this technology and how it intersects with their lives before we start saying things like, oh, just delete that app or, you know, block that person.
1: Can you guess the app? It was Snapchat. And I thought you were going to say the number one thing that reason teens, if they are going through a social conflict, might not talk to parents, would just be their
0: fear that we would overreact.
1: I mean, definitely that we'll take all their screens You're
0: totally right. That's one of the the most common things that kids tell us is like, oh my gosh, you know, my parents will run and get a baseball bat and go to war. Call the other parents. Yeah, call everybody. They'll be really upset. It is really important for parents to, and this is hard, to sort of take a calm attitude and say, okay, this is a problem, but it's a problem that we're going to deal with. It can be dealt with and we're going to deal with it. If you run around sort of shrieking with your hair on fire, then you're just gonna make your child more upset. And you, then you're not a comfort and a help. You're like another problem they have to deal with. Mm-hmm. And then
1: have them come up with solutions. You're there to kind of a sounding board. It's so hard though, if you have a teenager and you all you wanna do is quickly call the other parents or the school, what do you recommend?
0: The first thing to remember is the most powerful help for your child are other kids, not the adults, the other kids. So one of my kids once said that they were having a problem with this boy who was bullying them. And, you know, they were crying and telling me this. And what we did was we brainstormed about ways that they could stick with their friends and get their support, let them know what's going on uh, and avoid this mean person. And then we would check back in a day and see how that went.
1: One thing I've heard you say, Elizabeth, that I love too, is when kids are um, talking about some social situation that's going awry, how do we as parents just keep that questioning, gentle questioning, as opposed to kind of cut off conversation and feel like we have it?
0: I think for a lot of parents, it triggers something in us and it becomes very emotional really fast. And so it's a really good idea to sort of keep your cool, to listen to what they're saying, to ask questions, so you understand the what, when, where. You wanna know all the details. You wanna know when it happened, has it happened before? You wanna know who else was there. You wanna know how they felt about it in the moment. And all those kinds of questions sort of keep them talking. and. You really want to make sure that you have an understanding of what's going on before you start pulling alarms. And, you know, sometimes you're going to discover in the course of these conversations that your child is not completely innocent. And that's okay too. You know, kids make mistakes. We can't be so afraid of kids making mistakes. We really can't be. This is something as a country we've got to get over. Kids are going to make mistakes. Yes. It's how they learn. You know, one of the things too about adolescence is that a lot of things in life are drama at that age. And so I'm not, I'm not sort of minimizing things like tears, but there's a lot of tears and they don't always mean that it's a catastrophe. Sometimes it's just the kids are really upset about something and you'll say, you know, why don't you avoid that person and and sit with your friends on the bus and let's see what happens tomorrow. And they do, and they come back the next day and they say, it was fine. I said with my friends, it was totally fine. Now, sometimes you have to elevate things, right? So sometimes they say, I stuck with my friends, but they had their friends and they were really mean and they were going after us. And then you're saying, okay, you know, the show's over, we're calling the adults. But it's not always the first place to go. You'd start with the school, it depends on the situations, then the other parents. Yes, the other parents are usually not, Something that's going to work. Occasionally, occasionally, they will be helpful. But it depends on a lot of different things. Most of the time, parents are very defensive. They don't want to hear you accusing their kid.
1: I do know that when we've had situations, we've gone to the school, and that has been great in terms of talking with teachers and the counselor in a supportive way. Can you say a little bit about that?
0: So, one of the biggest things when we ask targets of bullying, how can adults be helpful? One of the biggest things they say adults can do is they can just be supportive and sort of check in on you and make sure things are okay. So when you're telling their teacher or you're telling the school counselor, then there's, you know, your child knows there's like more adults who are aware of what's happening. And, you know, they're not They're I can go to them if I need to, if I'm upset or if anything happens. And just having that support at your back makes you feel more resilient. And usually helps kids cope better.
1: What's interesting is we say to talk to the school or teachers and whatnot, we want our kids to advocate and be able to, and yet it can be tricky. And, you know, as Tessa in Screenagers Next Chapter is struggling with depression, that was a. Uh, Important to us, it. We were really blessed. She would talk with her teachers, but there were a few times when she entered high school and still kept having some really hard times. Where I just needed to send it an email, like this is why she hasn't been in class.
0: I think in general, it's a really good strategy to sort of shoot the other adults an email and say, "I just want you to know what's going on. I want you to know she's under a lot of stress and dealing with a lot of things and dealing with this kid on top of it and I just want you to, you know, I'm not really asking you to do anything. I want you to be aware and keep an eye peeled. Educators are actually grateful for those emails because it it helps give them an idea of what's going on socially. It can be such a mystery, especially with teenagers, that it can really be helpful to sort of know the backstory.
1: Exactly. And so many of them are really skilled at just kind of, you know, then taking a the time to just talk a little bit and then boom, things can open up. And, you know, teachers have been a lifesaver to us for my son and my daughter. And Elizabeth, you have three kids, older kids. Um, what, what's the ways that you ask questions just to kind of check in, but change it up and just different ways you've done it to not just have them run to Alaska when you ask.
0: <laughs> so I do it in the abstract. I don't say things like, so I've heard, you know, there's this rotten app, are you doing it? What's going on with that? You know, that's not what I do. What I do is I say things like, I heard today about the Flinger Flinger app, you know, have you ever heard of it? Like, what is it? Is it fun? Or I say, um, oh, I, I heard about this case where this, this kid was going after this other kid and it got a, a whole mess and now it's in the media in town or all the parents are talking about it. and. And what is, what's going on? And so, you know, I try to sort of keep it a little bit in the abstract and we have had problems. I mean, all three of my kids have had problems but none of them have been extremely serious. And I will say that I did hear about them when they got to the point where people were really upset. I sort of, uh, you know, lived and died by this motto that You know, my purpose in this relationship right now is just to be interested in them and not expect them to talk to me when they don't want to. When parents ask me about kids not talking about problems, I always say to them, you know, don't worry if they answer. It's totally developmentally normal for kids to not confide everything in their parents. I mean, my gosh, totally normal. But on the other hand, Teenagers still want parents who are interested enough to ask. That's going to be one of the biggest things that's going to sort of help them eventually talk to you if they need to.
1: I so enjoyed my conversation with Elizabeth. And the key is listening to this podcast with your kids or translating what was talked about into conversations you can have with them. What do they see as the downsides of using the word cyberbullying so often now in society? Do they know how key it is to support anyone who's being a target? Do they have friends and teachers they feel they can turn to when social situations aren't going well? How do teachers at their schools tend to talk to kids who are behaving meanly? And do they worry about talking with us about issues that they're having socially? Are they worried we will run and quickly involve other parents or that we're going to give bad advice or that we're going to take away all their screen time. That's it for our show today. And one quick thing, my new book, Parenting in the Screen Age, can be found at ScreenagersMovie.com as well as you can learn about chapter clubs related to the book and how you can watch the Screenagers movies right now with your kids. And to learn more about Elizabeth's incredible work and her books, go to her website, englanderelizabeth.com. And also check out awayfortheday.org regarding school policies and cell phones and how to bring change to your school if they don't have a policy that you think is really benefiting the kids. A special thanks to Elizabeth Englander for being on the show. And to my co-producer, Lisa Tabb, I'm Delaney Reston, producer and editor of the Screenagers podcast. And hey, if you get a minute, please subscribe to the show, rate it, and share it. All of this really helps people learn about the show. Thank you so much, and I can't wait till next time.